Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This series was recorded in Jerusalem in 2009. In this lecture, David makes reference to a number of ideas and images which he has mapped out on a whiteboard. While we don't have visuals from that lecture, we have provided a number of images on the website for your reference. To find the episode page with these images, go to davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link to episode 59. You may also be interested to know that from October 26, David will be presenting a four-part online series for Caulfield Shul entitled Unorthodox Episodes from the Talmud. The series is free. For more information, visit davidsolomon.online. Good evening. Tonight's talk is the first in a series of talks that I don't want to give. Meaning that, as I explained last week, I'm reticent and I'm hesitant to talk on the subject of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, because of many of the perceptions out there that are confused about Jewish mysticism. That itself could be a reason to talk about it. But because... People often have an expectation, and listen carefully to this, and you'll know if you're one of them, people often have an expectation that Kabbalah is going to provide them with the answers to the meaning of their life. And in many ways, that expectation is not in vain. The entire breadth of the study of Jewish mysticism is designed for Jewish people primarily, to gain an understanding of their place in the world and their relationship with what we call a divine reality. This is one of the essential points that comes out of Kabbalistic thinking, that the reality we see around us is a construct that really masks the ultimate reality, which is a divine reality, of which we are very much a part And what Kabbalistic thinking shows us is what that divine reality is doing and how it interacts with the world. Because Kabbalah comes to answer a very fundamental question. How does an infinite God relate to a finite, pluralistic and somewhat corrupt universe? Last week I did speak about the big picture of the history and development of Kabbalistic thinking. As is the case with so many of my talks, I had to cover the last 400 years in about five minutes. And that's okay because tonight, and this series of talks, this next three series of talks, is precisely on the last 400 years of Kabbalistic thinking. I'm not going to be speaking about Kabbalah in general. I did that last week. I'm going to be talking about what we might call post-Lurianic. Kabbalah. We have, as you well know, in Kabbalistic thinking, two major revelations. Revelations which Kabbalistic thought tells us happened to the Jewish people and happened within Jewish history at the level of Eliyahu, meaning the revealed Torah 
is given to the Jewish people via the concept of Moshe. And the concept of Moshe runs right through the prophetic tradition, right through Chazal, right through the whole Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebaalpeh project. But there are certain revelations that happen at the level of Eliyahu, and we have had two major revelations in the course of the last eight, nine hundred years. One of which, of course, was the revelation in 13th century Spain of the Zohar, and I spoke about last week about the whole issue with the Zohar. I'm not going into that now. Suffice it to say that if you believe that the Zohar was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the second century, you are not a heretic. And if you believe that the Zohar was written in 13th century Spain, you are not a heretic. Both of those views are easily assimilable. Assimilable. Within nominal Jewish thinking, and so I'm not going to dive into that right now. The second major revelation is the revelation of the Ari, the revelation of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, that happened in Tzfat in the 16th century. These, whichever strand of Kabbalah you follow, whichever school you belong to, whichever approach you have, it is virtually universally recognized that those two massive revelations impacted upon Jewish thought like no other in terms of the development and unfolding of what we call Torah Hasod, the mystical level of Torah. This is all by way of introduction. Those of you who are wondering why I haven't said anything substantial yet will know that it's because I haven't. Yeah. That's an excellent question. Let me spend half a minute answering that. The question was, is that we don't actually know what Kabbalah is. Kabbalah is the mystical, revealed dimension of Torah, in contrast to the unfolding of what we speak about, say, in Jewish philosophy, the rational tradition. Kabbalah is dependent upon gilui, upon the level, on, it's dependent upon the aspect of revelation. It is the deeper mystical meaning of Torah and of Jewish life that is revealed to the Jewish people over time in various stages and attempts to allow us to glimpse our relationship with the will of God in the world at a much more mystical, deeper level about this divine reality that, is that we are all part of and that is actually going on. I can't get more specific about that because if I start, and I know that's not a terribly satisfactory definition, but once we start... Here's the problem with Kabbalah is that once we start getting into specifics of definitions, we start running up against different interpretations of what mystical thought actually is. But it definitely depends upon revelation. It depends upon the acknowledgement that there is a divine reality that is behind everything that we experience. And there are one or two identifying features of all Kabbalistic thinking and texts. And that is what I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on now. There are, as I said, one or two ideas that are identifiable within all Kabbalistic thinking since there's 99% of Kabbalistic thinking since the Zohar. And I'll go into that for a couple of minutes. One of the ideas that unifies Kabbalistic thinking 
is the idea that the divine is revealed in the world through a series of ten modalities that we call the spherot. And the spherot really are the revealed creative powers of God. That's a definition that was provided by Sholem, as I mentioned last week, and it's, it's, it's as good a definition as anyone can get, although there are many different ways of trying to understand Sfirot. If I explain Sfirot now and you don't understand what I'm talking about, you are part of a very, very, very popular tradition. People spend their entire life trying to understand what exactly do we mean by these Sfirot. But everything in the universe, every object, every existing thing, whether they are human beings or history or objects or events, are revealed in the world through these ten creative modalities through which divine influx comes into the world and allows things, including the universe itself, to be revealed. I'll go through them quickly. They begin, they begin with Keter, and Keter, of course, means crown. It represents the highest... Most people understand Keter to be interpretable to the concept of will. It is the very beginning of the suggestion that something should exist. But the real creative power begins with Chokhmah, sometimes badly translated as wisdom, but it really means Chokhmah. And Chokhmah is, however, is the flash of creative power that has no dimensions in itself. It's a point, but it's an emergence into reality of creative power. It's really in Binah that Chokhmah begins and that the idea begins to take dimensions and is nurtured into something that has coordinates. Sometimes Chokhmah and Binah combine to produce Da'at, and Da'at meaning knowledge and is the combination and the realization of this nurturing between Chokhmah and Binah. Then the creative power of the divine is revealed in a series of steps. Chesed, we know the meaning of the word Chesed. Chesed means outpouring, it means loving kindness, it means beneficence, it is extension, it is a giving concept. Gvura is the concept of limit, judgment, severity. And as the mashal that I generally give is the idea of understanding traffic. Everybody likes green lights, but if there were only green lights, there would be nothing but mayhem. So, although, so everybody can recognize the value of red lights, but if all we had was red lights, then there would be no traffic and everything would stop. So we need the combination of two to create the harmony. So Chesn and Gvura work to create a harmony which we call Tiferet. The meaning of the word Tiferet, of course, means beauty, splendor, but it indicates the harmony of Chesn and Gvura. Then this pattern is repeated in Netzach, but the difference between Netzach and Hod and Chesed and Gvura is that Netzach and Hod have been mitigated through Tiferet and are involved in an engagement with reality. That will be understood in a moment, in a little bit. Yesod is the collective basin, if you like, of all of these creative powers that flow through this system and ultimately emerge in a realized way in Malchut. Malchut means sovereignty or kingship. So there's a direct relationship between Malchut and Keter. Keter is the crown. The crown is the symbol of authority. All power is devolved from the crown, but is realized through sovereignty, through Malchut. Now, 
Those of you who know a little of Kabbalistic literature and thought will realize that very rarely do we see them, the Sfirot presented like this. The most common understanding of the Sfirot, of course, and this is the huge innovation, not innovation, but the huge emphatic point of the Zohar, is to show that all these Sfirot are actually dynamic and we're much more likely to see them as what we call an ilan, meaning a tree. So we have Keter here, Chochmah, and Binah here, on the right and left hand sides, balanced by Da'at, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchut. And of course the Zohar is very concerned about this relationship between Malchut and Tiferet. What the Zohar does is, first of all, it is a massive perush on the Torah itself, because it's presenting to you Torah Hasod, the secret mystical meaning of Torah, and it's showing you how the Torah really can be understood as the interaction of these divine creative powers, and that, in fact, major figures in the Torah are symbolized in the Sfirot. Avraham is Chesed, Yitzchak is Gvura, Yaakov is Tiferet, and so on. And we just, there's a whole many discussions on that. But also the Sfirot underline the day-to-day Jewish calendar. They underline the whole way in which a Jew interacts with the world. But also on a meta-historical level, the Zohar is concerned that you understand that the real thing going on is the relationship between Tiferet, which represents the essence of the revealed God in the world, and Malchut, and Malchut represents basically Knesset Israel, the spiritual dimension of the Jewish people, which is the feminine counterpart of God. Wadical, but true. The and, and, and I say this with all the caution that one needs to have, is that obviously a major part of Kabbalistic thinking is the realization that this schema of creative powers and or modes of creative revelation in the world also correspond to the structure of a human being, such that, of course, Chochmah, Bina, and Da'at represent the intellectual faculties. Chesed is the right arm, Gvura is the left arm, Tiferet is the torso, but specifically here, Netzach and Hod are the two legs that, of Halacha that engage a person in the world. Yesod is the sexual organ and Malchut is the feminine counterpart or the end of the sexual organ. Depends which way you look at it. This relationship indicates that everything that we talk about in Kabbalistic thinking, everything we talk about is comprehensible on the big picture and on the micro picture. So that when you sometimes pick up Kabbalistic books and they seem to focus on one or the other, that is in fact a case of emphasis, but everything that the great holy Kabbalists of the Jewish people have spoken about is comprehensible on all of these levels. I can't give more of an introduction now about the Sfirot because we simply not have time for me to cover the really interesting stuff that I've got to cover tonight, but that is an essential introduction. If you do not understand, I mean the word understand is a very big word. If you are not familiar to some extent with the concept of Sfirot, it's going to be very, very difficult to negotiate any Kabbalistic literature. By the way, and I make this, I make this, what would be the word? 
cautionary remark, because all capitalistic books contain cautionary remarks. It's not like Sfirot are objects existing somewhere up there. This is the way in which the divine is revealed inside a limited universe. Just as when we shine light through a prism and it breaks up into a spectrum of visual light, similarly, when divine creative power comes into the world, it is revealed to those the beings that are capable of understanding this revelation according to this spectrum of Sfirot. This is a way by which we are able to understand the divine reality and God's interaction with the world. If you understand what I've explained till now, you can understand, at least on the surface level of symbology, most of what the Zohar is talking about. The Zohar is thousands of pages long. It's a massive poem, effectively, describing the relationship between God and the world, God and the Jewish people. Remember that the Kabbalah is basically... I hate that term, the Kabbalah. Kabbalistic thinking is primarily not about you. It is, in fact, about God. But it's also about you in terms of how you are a vessel of God in the world. You are part of this divine manifestation. Therefore, you have a potency, you have a meaning, you have a place, you have a very, very great importance in the whole cosmic relationship of what's going on in the world. All right, now here we go. The Zohar is revealed at the end of the 13th century in Spain. And so we have for the next... 250 years or so, or nearly 300 years, it is growing in influence, and anyone mystically inclined finds their way to a copy of the Zohar. It wasn't, of course, printed until the middle of the 16th century, but it was circulating greatly in manuscript, and everybody was reading it, and no one was really understanding it. There were a few people that understood the underlying mystical ideas. People became inspired by the Zohar. People delved deep into the Zohar. But it was generally recognized that the Zohar was a very, very complex text that no one really understood. There were a few compendiums to the Zohar. The most famous compendium to the Zohar was written around about the time that the Zohar appeared by Yosef G. Katila. It's, it's a book that's still one of the best introductions to Kabbalistic thinking around. It's a book called Sha'arei Ora, Gates of Light, by Rabbi Yosef G. Katila, who was, by the way, a student of... Madena? No, it was a bit earlier. He was a student of Avram Abulafia. Avram Abulafia, who's one of the few people we have in the Jewish mystical tradition from the 13th century onwards, who wasn't that interested in Sfirot, but Jikatila then switched over to the Zoharic school and wrote a compendium where he basically shows you how each of the terms in the Zohar, used by the Zohar poetically, which of the Sfirot they refer to. So it's a very, very useful text. But for 300 years, people are... in the Zohar, but they're not really nailing its definitive understanding. Remember that the Zohar is multi-layered. So... There's a main body of the Zohar, then you've got several very, very obscure books, which are parts of the Zohar, such as the Idras, the Idra Rabbah, the Idra Zuta, the Sifr Ditzniyuta. These are very, very dense, complex, poetically written, and highly stylized books that are very difficult to understand, even on the surface level. 
You've also then got another strand called Tikkune Zohar. The Zohar is written, remember, in Aramaic, which introduces new concepts, or not new necessarily, but new for us, such as the, concept, the fact that there are the concept of Abiyah, and I'll just speak about Abiyah briefly because it's going to be important. Obviously, Abiyah isn't an acronym, and it's not an acronym written in English, obviously. It's Aleph Bet Yud Al Ayin, which stands for the worlds of Atzilut, emanation, Briah, creation, Yitzirah, formation. These are very loose translations, and Asiyah, the world of action, basically our world. So there are four dimensions of reality, each of which are enclosed in each other. Tikkun represents introduces these ideas, but nevertheless, over the next, course of the next 300 years, the Zohar is gaining in influence, but no one has really come down and nailed its definitive understanding. As you know, there was a very, very big event that happened in Jewish history at the end of the 15th century. And we all know by now what that is. It's called Gerush Sfarad, the expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula. Spain, Portugal, hundreds of thousands of Jews exploded outwards, and the Jewish community of Spain, in terms of its revealed manifestation, was over. That saw the revival of Jewish culture and Jewish life and Jewish spirituality in other parts of the world, and specifically in the Ottoman Empire, which offered sanctuary to Jews who could arrive there. That is really the background behind the rebuilding of the north of Israel in the 16th century, not just physically, but spiritually, and the revival of communities in Tiberia and elsewhere in the Galil, but nowhere more impressively than in Tzfat. And in Tzfat, we had a massive collection of individuals, all of whom would have been impressive in any, any age, and they're all basically living in the one street. Those of you who have been to the old town of Tzfat, which is probably most of us, realize that it's not that big, and yet it contained phenomenal figures. Now, for our purposes... There were many, many Kabbalists who arrived there as well. Many original Kabbalists. When I say original Kabbalists, they're taking the Sephirotic understanding that is propounded by the Zohar, and they are building upon that tremendous spiritual insights. People like Moshe Alshech, people like Ravdavid Ibn Zimra, and perhaps most importantly for our purposes, a very big figure called Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. Obviously, his name itself shows the origin of his family. Now, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero summarizes basically all of Zoharic Kabbalah in a major compendium that he writes when he's 27 years old called Pardes Rimonim. And in Pardes Rimonim, he tries to ameliorate between the major philosophical concerns that have come out of the Middle Ages and how Kabbalah is precisely that mode of thinking which can answer questions that are unanswerable by philosophy. It's a very, very big book, in the course of which he introduces certain symbolic 
constructs that become very, very important for our understanding of the way the divine comes into the world. Notably, the idea of or and kli, the idea of light and vessel. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. Your support can really make a difference. If you enjoy these lectures, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast, or simply telling others who may be interested. Now, let's get back to the lecture. I really want to pick up now on precisely what it is we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. When the Ramak, when Moshe Cordovero passed away, and he wasn't old, he was 48, and he had already written, not just Pardesri Munim, but 20 years later he'd already written Elima Rabati and certain major works that showed an even deeper and deeper thinking. Elima Rabati is a mind-blowing text. When he passed away, there was one newcomer to Tzfat. He'd only been there for two or three months. No one really knew much about him. They knew he'd come from Egypt. They knew that he'd studied uh, under some of the greatest rabbis in Egypt. They Obviously, word was getting out that this guy had spent a few years sitting on the Nile with his copy of the Zohar meditating, but no one really knew who he was, yet he was the only one at the Ramak's funeral who saw the great pillar of fire that accompanied the coffin of the Ramak as it was making its way to its burial site, which you can go and visit today, obviously. A short time after that, people soon realized that Isaac Yitzhak Luria was not there to learn, but in fact was there to teach. He hands down a massive revelation over the course of the next 18 months, 18 to 20 months, to a very small select group of pupils, and then he dies. And he's only about 38 when he dies. That's really where I need to pick up now. People talk about Lurianic Kabbalah. People say, and you'll see this everywhere, you'll see it in books, you'll see it in websites, you'll see it in coffee conversations, this idea that the Ari says, or it says in the Ari. Now, when people say the Ari, everybody understand what I mean by the Ari? The Ari is Yitzhak Luria, various interpretations of what that anachronym mean. It could mean Eloki, Rabbi Yitzchak, the godly, the divine Rabbi Yitzchak. It could be Ashkenazi. It could stand for a number of things. The Ari was born in Yerushalayim. He passed away in Tzvat in around 1572. When people say, it says in the Ari, or Lurian Kabbalah says, or you know the sort of statement I mean, that's precisely the uncontextualized statement that I want this small series of talks to address. I want to understand exactly what it is that Kabbalah is in the world today, where it came from, and how it branches out, not only in the Jewish world, but in the world generally. And I want to look very in detail at what it was that we think the Ari was talking about. Because at the end of the day, the Ari did not actually write anything down. He didn't write anything down. He wrote two or three texts that we are reasonably sure are his. One of them, of course, is his famous Zmirot for Shabbat, that you'll find in many Sidurim. A Zmirah, a special Aramaic, in Zoharic Aramaic, a Zmirah for Friday night, one for Shabbat lunch and one for Sudash Lishit. And we also believe that there is 
a perush on uh, an essay on Sifrit's Niuta that the Ari may also have written not long after he arrived in Tzfat, but we don't really have anything written down from the Ari about what we call Lurianic Kabbalah. Everything I've said till now is just an intro. Now we can start. Now we need to talk. Now we need to talk. So put your seatbelts on because some of this material is going to be difficult. But I need to tell you that what I'm talking about tonight, and I apologize if the level is too low, but what I'm talking about tonight is really mamash, the tip of the iceberg. Everything I say is simply a doorway into a vault of concepts. We could really take any of these concepts and talk about them all year. Basically this. Although the Ari didn't write anything down, others did. He has a group of disciples of which some we know and some are more obscure. Lurianic Kabbalah has come down to us in two basic streams. And the predominance of one stream over the other has depended on propagation and on historical circumstances, and on where you are, and on what you can get hold of. There are a myriad of schools within Kabbalistic thinking, but all of them are generally traceable back to two major interpreters of the Ari's thinking. The most famous of these, of course, and the one that is regarded as the primary conveyor of the main teachings of the Ari, is, of course, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Known, perhaps more formally, as Rabbi Chaim ben Yosef Calabresi Vital. His family was from Calabria in Italy. His father, Yosef, lived in Tzvat. He may well have been the one that emigrated from Italy. And his father, Yosef, was one of probably the most well-known sofer, the most well-known scribe. Chaim Vital is an extremely interesting figure. He's born in 1543, and he grows up in Svat, and already as a young man, he has an inclination towards mysticism, and not just Jewish mysticism, meaning, obviously, I'm not talking that he was involved in the other religion, God forbid, but he was a very, very curious mind. And most of his 20s, he's dabbling in alchemy. Now, alchemy, remember, is not something that exists just in Harry Potter books. <laughs> alchemy in the 16th century would have been, was regarded, because at the end of the day it's basically the same word, as we would regard chemistry. It's not modern chemistry. Boyle has not come along yet. The 18th century hasn't happened. We don't have a concept of atomic weight. It's not chemistry as we understand it now. But there was definitely an angle towards science. Chaim Vital is living in the thick of the Renaissance. He is aware of what's going on in the world. Remember, even a hundred years after Chaim Vital, one of the great figures of the Enlightenment, Newton, is also dabbling in alchemy. And alchemy is a lot more than just how can I turn you know, this 
bit of schmutz into gold, although that was definitely one of the aims of alchemy, but it wasn't limited to just that exercise. We have many, many pages of Vital's alchemical writings. He's got a whole lab going on there in Tzfat. Yosef Karo might be living down the road, and there might be lots of different great mystics and rabbis in Tzfat, but Chaim Vital as a young man is deep in his laboratory. But he's also learning Kabbalah, because that's what you do. And because he's brilliant and he's mystical. And so what was the biggest thing going on at the time in Sfat, Kabbalistically speaking? Once you've gone through the Zohar, then you would be studying with, probably, if you're as bright as Chaim Vital, you would be studying with Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, who is enlightening you as to the great philosophical ideas that come out of the Zohar, as well as its deeper mystical meanings and so on. By the time we get to around 1570, so Chaim Vital is already in his late 20s, he thinks he's pretty clever. And so when the Ari turns up, Chaim Vital probably assumes that at some point soon, this young man from Egypt, who in fact was he is older than Chaim Vital, but he's only just come from Egypt. What can he know? It's probably going to knock on Chaim Vital's door and ask him to teach him. But in fact, it turned out, of course, to be the absolute opposite. Chaim Vital became completely subsumed by the radiant brilliance of the Ari. But when we talk about the Ari, we don't talk about brilliance. Because the Ari is like, oh, it's, it's, it's a revelation beyond intellect. It became very quickly apparent to Chaim Vital that he was in the presence of someone that is not just a one-in-a-generation person, but a unique individual in history. Remember that what the Ari transmitted to Chaim Vital over the course of 20 months was nothing short of a complete consciousness-changing paradigm. Lurianic Kabbalah changes the way you look at the world. It gets inside your mind and it changes it totally. It gives you a language and a system by which you can begin to perceive everything. Now, when the Ari passed away, I'm just giving a little bit of history and biography. When the Ari passed away, Chaim Vital spent the next few years flitting back and forth between Tzfat and Yerushalayim. He, he got smichai. He was a rabbi in Yerushalayim for a while, and we went to Tzfat and Yerushalayim, but he was extremely secretive about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of notebooks that he'd filled based on what the Ari had told him. He wouldn't let anyone see them. In fact, even those other students that Chaim Vital could get swore an oath of secrecy they would only receive Vital's tradition. Sometime in the 1590s, he became very ill and Various figures went to his brother and bribed his brother to allow them to basically borrow all of these massive amounts of writings because after the Ari had passed away, Vital had sat and had composed and recomposed and composed and recomposed these massive versions of what, trying to make sense of a system of what was going on. They took the whole thing and they employed 
a hundred, well, I don't know, a hundred, they employed a lot of scribes, and over the course of three days, while Chaim Vital was lying there, they transcribed the famous Tar Niyarim, the famous 600 pages, which became the basis of later Lurianic manuscripts. Chaim Vital eventually ended up in Damascus, and Chaim Vital doesn't die till 1620, and the last 20 years of his life, basically, he's living in Damascus, teaching an extremely small group of people some of the things that he learnt, and he is still so secretive about this material that he, in fact, is buried with them. After which, they form a Bet Din, and they grant permission to open the grave and take out the manuscripts. Because they said that this is something that was meant for the world, and we're sorry, Chaim Vital, but we have to have these notes. That is Chaim Vital, Rabbi Chaim Vital, but I'm going to, I don't want, there's no way I would ever be respectful to the Maharchu, but for the sake of brevity, I'm going to refer to him in comparison with other thinkers, just Vitalian Kabbalah, which we have gained through the thousands of pages of notes that he composed, recorded, transmitted. Now, that is one major stream by which Lurianic Kabbalah comes down to us. Eventually, all of these notes and versions and Mahadurot, and there was, a, there was several different Mahadurot. We have a Mahadurak, which means a version. Mahadura Kama, Mahaduratinyana, Mahadura Batra. They're all composed. It's not to the middle of the 1600s, when there was a revival of Kabbalistic thinking and scholarship in Jerusalem, are all these things put together and what is eventually produced is the big fat book we have today called Etz Chaim. Etz Chaim, which is an immensely complex book, an immensely difficult book. It's a very big book. We also have the Shmona Sharim, the eight gates of the similar material but organized differently by Chaim Vital's son Shmuel. The Etz Chaim is not printed until the end of the 18th century. So it's not printed until around 1783 by basically the Haskalah. You had a question. And he wants to know why it was so important conceptually or philosophically for Chaim Vital to hide this material. Because he believed that the Ari gave this to him as a private revelation that was meant only for a very, very small select group of individuals. The Ari told Chaim Vital that he came into this world only to teach him. Difficult to understand how he justified that in the light of Vital's own writings where he talks about how important these ideas are for the world. But it's a good question. No one really knows why he was so obsessively secret about it. Maybe he felt that he hadn't reached the final perfect version yet. We don't know. Remember that um, there's a similar, similar parallel between someone else who, before they died, said that when I die, I want all my writings to be burnt. And if it wasn't for the fact that his friends refused it, we wouldn't have his writings. You know who I'm talking about? Kafka. Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson. 
We do. We have a number. In fact, there's a splendid one. In, uh, the, the variations are slight. There's a, whole, there's a whole study. People have built entire careers on looking at those manuscripts. There are some variations, but always if we have variations, then there are other texts that include those variations and so on. The editing job on the Etzchayim done by Rabbi Meir Poppis in the 1660s is a massive editing job. It's, a fan, it's an amazing thing, but even with that... The Chaim is still a difficult book sequential. Nothing, nothing in Jewish thought. You can sit and you can learn Chumash and Tanakh with Allah Mepharshim. And then you can go through the whole of Shas and you can go through the whole of Midrash and you can go the whole of every single book in Machshevet Israel, and nothing will prepare you for Chaim. It's not a text that works sequentially in Jewish learning. And it will not make sense to you until they decree that you are ready to understand it. I have seen that myself many times. It's a difficult book, but as a result of this talk, I'm sure it'll be a lot easier. <laughs> the other big stream by which Lurianic Kabbalah comes down to us, and those of you who are familiar with Kabbalistic ideas, remember that I'm going back to the source of all these ideas, and you'll be able to see how they emerge, is of course... A very, very, very different type of figure. Who knows who I'm going to talk about? No, the Ramchal is not till much later. The Ramchal is not till the 18th century. No, the Maharal is living in Eastern Europe, but he, the Maharal, interesting, contemporary of the Ari, but not quite in, inside the, the system just yet. Oh, <laughs> I, I, that's an excellent answer, but not yet. Not yet. No, no, no. We're talking about someone that is at the very, very early stage of the revelation of Lurianic Kabbalah, and that, of course, is Rabbi Yisrael Sarug. Now, who has heard of Rabbi Yisrael Sarug? You see, that's amazing, because so much of how we understand Kabbalistic ideas in the world today come from him and not from him. So that's why sometimes, although it is ironic, because some people say that Vital is the Itkasya. He is the, <laughs> he is the concealed one, and Sarug is the Itgalya, but in so many ways, everyone's heard of Vital, but no one's heard of Sarug. Yisrael Sarug had a personality that was completely opposite. He couldn't wait to get out and basically tell everyone he could exactly what it was the RE was talking about. There is a scholarly debate about whether Israel Sarug was in fact ever in Tzfat. Did he meet the RE? If he met the RE, did he meet the RE in Egypt? Or did he know him in Tzfat? Or did he rock up in Tzfat and they said, Oh, sorry, the Aries died. So he spoke to a few people and got an idea about what's going on. We don't know. Some scholars believe he wasn't, and some scholars believe he was. But he was certainly, very, very early on, the major propagator of Lurianic Kabbalah outside of Sfat, because he turns up in Italy in the 1590s, where he makes contact with some of the big Kabbalists that are in Italy. Please remember... Please, sometimes we forget, but please remember that in 1590, there were no emails, there were no blog sites. So the fact that, you know, 15 years later, 
there are people living in Italy who haven't quite heard of this massive Lurianic revolution in Kabbalah can be forgiven. But Sarug is the first person to turn up in Italy. Had students like Nachmanzare Mifano and the great Italian Kabbalists who have been studying Cordoveran Kabbalah and suddenly encounter the massive revolution in thought that the RE represents. And that revolution in thought is going to be the subject of our talk tonight. But we have to look. I'm going to be spending most of the time on the differences between these two interpreters and conveyors of Lurianic Kabbalah. There are many, 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 many people today in Yerushalayim who will tell you that Rabbi Yisrael Sarug should not be learnt. That's just historical circumstances and cultural circumstances. If you go into most Kabbalistic yeshivot today, they will tell you that the only texts you should be studying are the texts of Rabbi Chaim Vital. And yet what's amazing is, is that many of the concepts that they retain about Lurianic Kabbalah, about what the Ari was saying, come from nowhere else but Saruk. So he has been the underlying engine behind much of the dissemination of Lurianic Kabbalah, although he has not got much of the credit. Most of what we know about Rabbi Yisrael Saruk's teachings are contained in a series of books, but the most famous of which is a book called Limudei Atzilut, the teachings of emanation, which until the 19th century was attributed to Chaim Vital. I want to pick just three or four. I've, I've, there's a mass of material I wanted to go through, but I'm just going to pick three or four major points to illustrate, A, what the Ari is talking about and the revolution that he affected, but to show you the difference between these two streams and how they come down in Jewish history. Next week, we'll start combining them, because next week I'm going to focus primarily on two major thinkers of the 18th century, the Ramchal and the Gra, and you'll start seeing how these ideas start combining. Let's talk about the creation of the world, the creation of the universe. You know, it seems to contemporary science today that if you apply the laws of general relativity to a reversal of time, you get to a singularity of infinite density and infinite temperature, what we call, cutely, the Big Bang. The question is, science cannot yet explain what caused the Big Bang. What caused this singularity of infinite temperature and density to start cooling and to start breaking up and basically to form time, space and the universe that we now know? The remarkable, the re one of the remarkable ideas that has come out of the Kabbalah of the Ari, which is way beyond any idea that was circulating in the 16th century, I can tell you, is that it all makes sense to us. Why was, however, the universe created? Is the opening line of its Chaim. Why was the universe created? And Chaim Vital tells you 
No problem. Remember, do you remember that? Um, uh, did anyone do any philosophy with me? Yeah? So you remember that the famous thought of Chastai Kreskus when he's blasting away at the Rambam because the Rambam says, we don't know why the universe was created. And Kreskus is saying, you really need to know why it was created. Even if you're wrong, it's important to have a reason. Well, and, and as it happens, Kreskus will tell you what that reason is. Well, Chaim Vital just simply stop. I'll tell you why the universe was created. But philosophically, it's a problem. He says that the universe was created because there are aspects of God that can only arrive at their true perfection in a revealed universe. Things like Rahum. How can God be merciful if there's no one to be merciful to? True, the concept of Rahum exists in Ein Sof, in the infinite, Bekoach, in potential, but unless it's brought out Bepoal, unless it's brought out in actuality, it's not perfected. The universe is created to complement the perfection of God's Midot. Philosophically, this is a very, very big problem. Commentators and Kabbalists have climbed all over this. And they've said, what are you talking about? You're close to saying that God, in a sense, was compelled to create the universe or need it in some way. And, and Chaim Vital uses this word, keviyachol, as it were. The answer that Chaim Vital will probably give you is the fact that he's talking about the ratzon of God. He starts at Chaim, when it arose in his will. His highest point that he's prepared to talk about God is the will of God to create. Inside the will of God to create, we're already talking about an outward, so to speak, manifestation of divine energy. So we can talk on these concepts of why the will wants to create. The highest level that Vital takes you to is the Ratzon. And everything that's going to happen, he says, happens inside the Ratzon of Hashem. The will of Hashem. Above the will of Hashem, not only am I not going to even tell you that we can't talk about it, I'm not even going to mention that it is there. I'm only going to start talking about the will to create. That's the highest level. But at this level of absolute abstract creation, I can't talk about anything beyond the Ratzon of Hashem and the Ratzon of Hashem to create. Look, I'm going to take you way beyond the Ratzon of Hashem. I'm going to take you deep, deep inside Ein Sof. Now, I didn't mention it earlier, I talked about it last week, but this concept that emerges in the Zohar, in Tikkunah Zohar, is one of the big shifts that, that the Kabbalah makes within Jewish thought is the idea that we're not just now talking about God as being one, we're talking about God as being infinite. So Ein Sof is really how Kabbalistic literature talks about God. Inside Ein Sof, says Sarug, way above the level of Ratzon. I'm not so much concerned about what God is thinking, I want to know what God is doing while he's thinking about creating the world. What's he doing? What's going on with God, says Saruk? It's the most startling 
beginning of the whole creative process. And that is, that so Rook tells you in his opening lines, you should know that we're going to begin the whole system by you realizing that God, before creation, before thinking about creation, before anything, God is enjoying himself. He's having fun. In fact, it is a concept called the Shashua. He's playing. He's enjoying himself. What we call autarkic self-sufficiency. He's just really, really getting off on being God. And this Shashua is so enjoyable. This Shashua is so enjoyable that God's laughing. He's laughing. And that laughter, just like a person when they laugh, you know, their belly wobbles and so on, this laughter creates vibrations. And these vibrations are going to be what is going to be the movement, the na'anuim, that are going to create creation. In other words, and I'll put it in slightly more sophisticated language, although the language I just used is the very language that Sarug uses, above the level of ratzon, above the level of will, and remember, everything we speak about is applicable both cosmically and anthropically, above the level of will, above the level of ratzon, is the level of ta'anug, the level of delight. Now, that's pretty startling. We have a laughing God who starts off the whole process. Exactly, Mantracht und Gott lacht. Saruk would have absolutely, he would see massively depth Kabbalistically in that statement. Mantracht und Gott lacht. Yeah, but it really, it really takes, and you need to bear with me on this thought because it, it really, really booms out a little bit later. One of the major, major texts in the whole of the Kabbalistic tradition is a text deeply influenced by the thinking of Sarug and it is a text that went on to become incredibly influential itself on the Sabbatean movement, on the development of Kabbalah generally on the Hasidic movement on the Gra and right down to our own day where only in the last few weeks have I started seeing it being re-quoted in different places this is a book by, written by a Kabbalist in Germany called Rav Naftali Bacharach. He's sitting in Frankfurt and he writes a book called Emek HaMelech. We don't have time to go into Emek HaMelech now. Startling book, totally ecstatic and completely within the Sarugian tradition. He explains what it is that God is laughing about and when you realize what God is laughing and enjoying himself about, you suddenly realize the incredible depth of the idea that Sarug wants to tell you. And that is, what is God taking delight in? The thought of tzaddikim. That there would be a world in which there would live people that would be righteous. The souls of the tzaddikim ascend back through time and space to the very primordial thought of God to create the universe and cause God to create the universe. Meaning that the definition of a tzaddik is someone someone who lives their life in a way that it would be worth creating the universe for them. 
It's a very, very big idea that comes out of the extrapolation of what it is that God is taking Ta'anug from. But then it starts getting interesting. Etz Chaim is divided into 50, it's divided into Sheva Hechalot and 50 gates, whatever. I'm going to give it to you now in two minutes. Here's everybody. Tell me if you've never heard of the concept of Tzimtzum. A, a chemist store. All right. One of the big ideas that the Ari brings into the world is the concept of Tzimtzum. First of all, and I've discussed this before, the Ari just takes our entire concept of God and goes, just shoots it right up. This whole problem, generally in Platonic thought, but certainly in Jewish mystical thought, of how we bridge the gap between the divine, infinite, and us. Well, we don't. We don't. This world was created yesh me'ayin. But what does that mean, says Vital? It means that here's Ein Sof, and then, bang! God, who is everything, creates a nothing inside itself. A vacuum, which is void of infinite light. God withholds, draws away from a central point to the sides to create a spherical space, obviously not physical, in which creation can then happen. Because creation cannot be revealed unless Ein Sof does that. Because Ein Sof, just the, Ein Sof will not allow anything that is not Ein Sof to become revealed unless Ein Sof is withdrawn. This is a massive cataclysmic moment and it's very well known and there are complete tomes written on it and we could run a course of 10 talks on it and Tzimtzum is a massive concept but ultimately it is the withdrawal of Ensof into itself to create the space of creation. Then inside the Halal Ensof pours itself, re-enters inside the Halal but this time in the form of a cove, a line. That's how it begins. God re-enters the space in the form of a line. Everybody following? As the Kav comes into what we call the Halal, it's emanating. And it's emanating, first of all, very badly drawn circles. <laughs> How many of them, of course? Ten. These are the first Tensfirot emanated, and it's emanating in two forms. One is circles, which we call igulim, and one is yosher, and these are tensfirot of igulim, and tensfirot of yosher, which are the lined up tripartite schematic that I showed you before of the sfirot, which are called the yosher, meaning straight. Now you know, Shoshala, why teaching this material in this format is not ideal. They're coming, I drew them badly, I, that shouldn't start there. They're coming from here. They're lines, remember I, we talked about the Sfirot like, like that, right? Remember that whole thing? So that's what's coming out. That's what we call Yosher, that's lines coming out and circles. Just hold on to that paradox for a moment. We have a paradox in physics that doesn't keep, keep us awake at night. You know, is light particles or waves? 
doesn't keep us awake at night. But this does. Sorry? It, well, it's a photo. It's a particle and a wave. This entire production of Igulim and Yosher, of Sfirot, which is the first emanations coming into the Halal, is a structure which is called, in Kabbalistic literature, Ak, which stands for Adam Kadmon. Primordial man. You have to realize, take your average yeshiva bocha, who's told, you know what, you've learned a bit of everything, now you should sit down and learn some Kabbalah. So he opens up its chayim, and suddenly he sees this. Completely conceptually unprepared for it within the nominal rabbinic tradition. These are massively reified intellectual, spiritual ideas. And I'm only giving an absolute reduced version on this. is the first few pages, but I just want to highlight some differences. Adam Kadmon comes into the halal. In other words, this is the mode of which God is going to be revealed in the world through this anthropic structure of the Sfirot, both in Igulim. Many later commentators will come and explain what Igulim are. Igulim are like the laws of nature, or they are the general hashkacha that happens in the world. But the Yosher and the Kav, the Yosher coming from the Kav, is the real imminence of the divine in the world. All of these things work on the big scale and the small scale. Now, however, that's not how Sarug starts creation. Sarug says, before there are Svirot, there's something else. I told you about the Sha'ashua, the, you know, the laughing, the delight. That then creates the Na'anua, which are the vibrations. And the Na'anua create points. And these points create the first real building blocks of the universe, which are not Sfirot, but letters. Otiot. And these letters, God is wrapped in these letters as an interface with the universe, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and they form a concept called the Malbush. The Malbush is like the garment, I mean, like the talit, or the garment of the divine, because a direct interface between the divine and the universe couldn't work. It must go through a linguistic interface before we can even begin to comprehend the revelation of the divine in the world. The concept of God is only understood through language in the ultimate sense. This Malbush, by the way, is composed of combinations of letters. It goes Aleph, Bet, Aleph, Gimel, Aleph, Dalad, Aleph, Hey, all the way down. And then Bet, Gimel, Bet, Dalad, Bet, Hey, and then Gimel, Dalad, Gimel, Hey. You end up, if you do that, you end up with 231, what they call the Ralash Sha'arim of the Malbush. 231 gates of the Malbush. Now, here's the really big point. The Malbush, here's the Malbush. The Malbush then is folded in half. The bottom half comes up and sits behind the top half, creating that space. Inside that space... <laughs> I just had a major, major revelation about something that I realized why the Ari didn't write anything down. 
it's very difficult to explain how that space gets there or what's doing in that space unless I explain to you Absagmabang, which are the four different ways in which the name of God can be written. You know that, well, you have to realize that obviously the name of God plays a very, very big part in Kabbalistic thinking. Um, to what everybody knows what I mean by the tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Shem, Havaya. So therefore, but there are several ways in which that can be written, Bemilui. Does everybody know what I mean by Bemilui? No, clearly not. Um, right, let me show you something, right? I'll do it with another word. I'll do it with the word, what's a word you know in Hebrew? Yeled? Sure. Cool. I'm now demonstrating just what the concept of milui is. That's all. This is not a sample word. That's yeled. A milui is I go yud, lamed, dalet. Everybody follow? So I'm actually taking each letter and I'm writing out the name of the letter. So if you write out yud, hey, vav, hey, it can be spelt in different ways. Everybody follow that? If I said to you, write hey, how do you spell hey? How do you spell vav? Different ways in which you could do it. That creates four basic variants, which are the name of 72, the name of 63, the name of 45, and the name of 52, depending on whether you use alephs, hey's, yuds, vavs, and so on. Now, interestingly enough, add all these up and you get 232. That means that one yud, the last yud of this name, stays in the Tehiru, and that does all the work of creation. Amazingly, amazingly for Sarug, what happens is when the Ein Sof is withdrawn, basically, when the Malbush is folded over, what's left is not nothing. It's not nothing. It's a concept that we call the Rashimu. What is the meaning of the word Roshem? impression. Basically anywhere where a divine energy has been, even if the divine energy leaves, there is always an impression of the presence of that divine energy having been in that place. That's a basic spiritual rule. Many, many people don't realize that when Chaim Vital talks about Simtum, he's not talking about Rashimu, he doesn't mention it. There are many people today who will swear to you they've never touched Sarug in Kabbalah, but they talk about the Rashimu. Chaim Vital doesn't talk about the Rashimu, Sarug does. Inside the Rashimu, these worlds are created. What then happens is this. Here's Adam Kadmon. I'm so pleased that this is not being filmed. It's only being recorded. Watch this. Watch. Here's Adam Kadmon. Everything, everything that happens, happens here. Because the top half of Adam Kadmon for Vital contains processes that, hundreds of pages of processes that are very, very complex, but they end up here at what we call a level halfway across Adam Kadmon called the Parsa. It's a level that divides between the top and lower parts of Adam Kadmon. That is where we have a very, very big cataclysmic event. That event is known as the Shvirat HaKelim, the smashing of the vessels. We have now got devolved Shvirat that are vessels. Light then pours into them and the vessels 
cannot contain the light. And they smash. You know that basically the whole of Lurianic Kabbalah at this point, the whole of Lurianic Kabbalah is a commentary on one verse of Torah. Who knows which verse that is? It's a verse you would think, you know, Barishit Bar Elohim, some fantastically famous verse that's like cosmic. No. The whole of Lurianic Kabbalah is a commentary on the verse which you'll find in Parshat Vayishlach. These are the kings that ruled in the land of Edom before there was a king for the children of Israel. The Zohar makes a big thing about it. No one really understands it. It was the Ari who came along and explained what that is all about. The seven Sfirot that emerge after Chabad, but the seven Sfirot that emerge here are those seven kings. Each one of them smashes, each one of them dies, and they fall to the lower worlds. This here, this dividing line, is the difference between the worlds of Tohu, chaos, disorder, and our universe here, which are the three worlds of Biyah, which is our entire universe. This is the world of Tikkun. The Ari said, I've come to teach you the world of Tikkun. Everybody else before me, including the Ramak, taught you about Tohu. I am coming to teach you about Tikkun. These worlds are reconstructed after this shattering. Of course, who is mostly responsible for that reconstructive project? We are. <laughs> no pressure. Why do the vessels smash? Because at this level, the vessels still came out like this. They came out as isolated points. They smashed because they were not integrated. Each one was in his own Rashut Hayachid. They were not integrated. They did not cooperate. They did not form a relationship with each other. In this reconstructed universe, which is Biyah, the three worlds of Briah, Yitzirah, and Asiyah, which are not three planets. They are, in fact, three dimensions of reality, each one enclosed within the other. Asiya is our world of facts and action. That's what we live in. Yitzhira, the world of concepts, angels. Briya, the world of ecstatic essences. Our entire universe, physical, conceptual, and spiritual, is contained in Briya. This is the real Yesh Me'ayin happens here. The real Ex Nihilo creation happens here. You know, Ganeden, all this stuff, even our entire spiritual journey, it's all contained here. There is a world that is constructed, Atzilut, that is the ideal world of Partsufim. Partsufim are integrated, integrated Svirot, where instead of coming out as points, they come out as integrated units. For Saruk, it's very different. He has a Shvira, but the Shvira is different. The creative power of the Malbush. What is the Malbush at the end of the day? It's the Torah Kedumah, the primordial Torah. The world is created through this infinite power. It comes into the vessels and starts multiplying Babilui. The vessels cannot handle the creative power of the primordial Torah. They can't handle it. They smash. Only for Sarug. Malchut does not break. It's a massive difference. For Vital, Malchut breaks. For Sarug, Malchut does not break. Because Malchut gets precisely the light that is meant for it. 
This creative power that cannot be contained by spiritual vessels can only be repaired and fixed and contained in this world by us living it and by us creating this world here. And then the other famous big idea to come out of the Ari is, we all know, is the idea of Tikkun. Tikkun, which forms Tikkun Olam and fixing of the world, you've got to realize that everything that I've discussed up till now in Etz Chaim occupies maybe the first quarter of Etz Chaim. The whole of the thousands of pages of the rest of it deal with the construction here, not just of Biyah, but of parts of him of the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, which creates this ideal world that we are all trying to become. And the two big central figures, par- and what's a partsuf? A partsuf is a fully integrated set of sfirot. The world, the heroes of the world of Atzilut that we are trying to emulate are Zah, standing for Ze'er Pin, meaning the presence of God in the world, and Nukva which means the feminine, which is the world, which is us. These are actual anthropic parsufim that grow. What builds them? What builds them? What comes down and starts to build the world of Atzilut? A new light, an Or Chadash, that comes out from the head of Ak and comes down called Shema. And Shema, gematria value of 45, and 45 is Adam, this light of humanity that is really the, not humanity is down here, but the, the idea of humanity comes out and begins to reconstruct the lower worlds to build the ideal Parsufim. But what really builds up is our work here, what we call the Itaruta de la Tata, the arousal from below, because through doing mitzvot here and making the world a better place, we raise up a thing called because we are the feminine, we are the feminine, and we have to attract God's attention. And therefore, we raise up a thing called Mayin Nukvin, feminine waters. And if when I say the words feminine waters, you get a particular type of association, there's a general rule in Kabbalistic literature, if something sounds like it's erotic, it is. And that is responded to by, of course, Mayin Duchrin, which is masculine flow that comes down into the world. We basically meet God, but we are, in a sense, the Adam de la Tata. We are the Adam down here, all of humanity in general, and each of us specifically. So for Vital, when you do mitzvot, when you do things, everything you do has a massive cosmic implication about what it's doing to these worlds and the sfirot and the parts of him within these worlds in helping not just to repair the world, but in fact to assist in the completion of God's perfection. Whereas Sarug is much more concerned with telling you, he agrees, yeah, 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 fine, those parts of him, that's fine. But I'm actually much more concerned with describing these three worlds of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, our entire physical, conceptual, and spiritual universe, and what's going on there. Beyond that, we have no comprehension, except via the Torah of Kabbalah. Only Kabbalah tells us what is going on beyond the world of Bria and is our connection to Ein Sof. 
Only Kabbalah describes the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, which is the absolute perfected, idealized world that is recreated. And the world of emanation is ultimately where this world is striving to, this universe, not as well, this universe is striving to arrive at. Only through Kabbalah, only through Turat Hasod, do we have a connection with that which is above the Parsa, which that which is above our ex nihilo, out of nothing created universe. I'm going to stop here because people are looking at me like they're going to eat their own brains for breakfast. I know this material is not easy. I had to give, I know, I had to give it to you how it is now. I, I can't even begin to tell you how little I've actually transmitted and how I have really skimmed the surface of what is going on. I'm, part, I'm of a school that believes, a school, not a school, an opinion, that believes that Kabbalistic material begins to make sense when you emerge yourself in it. I believe that it's not a, a popular psychological movement that sells water and red strings and runs around. These ideas that I'm talking to you about today may seem incredibly reified, spiritual and distant. But if you stick with me, what I hope to show over the next couple of weeks is how they're brought down into actual spiritual practices and differences in the world today that can transform the way we look at the world and the way that give us meaning in the world by understanding that we are conveyors of the divine. The Jewish people as a whole, humanity as a whole, the Jewish people more particularly, and of course even more particularly us as individuals within this world. Kabbalistic material is not easy, nor do I believe should it be, but this is the Torah, says the Ari, that at the, in the Messianic period will be that which is spread out, known, understood, and the way in which people will look and realize the world and their relationship with the divine reality behind it. So thank you for sticking with me. I've had to go through this material quickly. And there are always things I haven't said. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.